Well, good morning and welcome one more time to Encounter. My name is Dirk, preaching pastor here at Encounter Church, where you matter to us, you matter to God. We're starting a brand new series today called Unbreakable. It's a four-part series. It's going to take us all the way through the end of January. So if you're kind of doing the math, it's, uh, it's, it's four parts. There's four weekends in January. We're doing the book of Ruth this incredible story. It's four chapters long. So if, if you kind of catch a theme to some of this, we're going to do one chapter each weekend through the month of January to see how God is creating in us this un breakable kind of faith. But before we get into the content of some of that, um, are there any bakers in the house this morning? Not cooks, but bakers. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, I just have to know who to befriend to get the spillover, right? Um, I, don't, I don't bake. I don't do this at all. I'm terrible at it. I don't have the attention to details and following directions. I don't have like um, uh, the self-control to pastor, two qualities you want in a pastor, I know. Uh, you can't, you can't, the problem with baking is you can't bake like one brownie or one cookie or one slice of pie. You have to do a whole tray or a whole batch or a whole bunch of pies, right? And then they sit around at my house and bad things happen from that point on. So the best thing is just to get it out. I don't bake, but I like your baking, FYI. Um, <laughs> when I was younger, though, I did like to bake, and I liked to help my mom. When she was baking, uh, baking cookies, the rule was, as you were you know, mixing everything around, I had two other uh, brothers, so we got to lick the, 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 the batter and the bowl and the spoon and the stirrer things, like all the, all the stuff, right? We had, to, we had to split it all up. And, uh, and we weren't allowed to eat it until everything was like mixed and together. Otherwise, it would just, it would just taste bad. Uh, but in the meantime, there was something that I was very curious about as an eight or nine-year-old. Does anybody know? I know you can't read it, but does anybody know what this is? Right. What is it now? Vanilla extract. Okay. You open it up and you, oh man, it smells delicious, Right. I mean, it's amazing. And so I remember as a kid smelling this and going, oh, if I can't have the cookie batter yet, because it's not all put together, it's not going to taste good, this stuff is probably the next best thing. Okay, so when my mom turns around to like do in the oven to do the whatever thing, I like slam one of these things back. It, you've done it too. Uh, it is bitter. It tastes Nothing like how it smells. I mean, it's, it's horrible. And it goes down so harsh and so bad and so just plain bitter. And I'm just like gagging and trying to, it was pretty obvious like what had happened. I'm like holding this empty bottle of extract and like, ah, it's just, it's terrible. The story of the book of Ruth is a lot like this vanilla extract. There's just parts of this story that go down so incredibly bitter. There's some parts of the story that you can look at and go, yeah, you brought that on yourself. Like, why did you slam it back in the first place? There's other parts of the story through no fault of anybody in particular. It just, it goes down bitterly. And so I just want to invite some of you into the story of Ruth this morning, just to kind of think about what your bitterness, what your bitter season is all about. It's just whatever like comes to mind at this time that somebody left, or maybe a test was failed, or a job interview didn't like follow through on. Like what is the season of bitterness that you either have experienced or honestly will experience? 
Because I want to I be the one to tell you that if you haven't had it yet, you will come into a season where you will be tasting the bitterness firsthand. And when that moment comes, I want you, church, to have this kind of unbreakable faith that you can take the sweet and the bitter alike and know that God is baking something delicious. There's a story I heard earlier this week that I think, I think puts this together uh, so perfectly well. A woman's name is uh, Irene. She, uh, she's got three kids at home, age ranges from middle school on up to high school. Uh, she's taking night classes to become a nurse uh, because she's kind of seeing what's uh, on the far side of the stay-at-home momming, and she's kind of getting ready for that next thing. Uh, her husband had just found out that for the first time since he was, I don't know, 14, he's going to be out of a job. If you can believe it, that wasn't the bitter part of the story. That came about a week after he found out what was happening. They found out. Their oldest son, Daniel, was coming home from football practice and hanging out at a friend's house to cool off. He dove into a pool. His head slammed into the concrete floor of that pool. And his C3, 4, and 5 vertebrae were damaged. The surgeons fused it together through two surgeries as best as they could. And the good news that everybody was waiting for was that he most likely wouldn't be paralyzed. But the road ahead would be monumentally challenging and some difficult decisions would have to get made. Now, for Irene's part, she knows that her husband hadn't stayed home with the, with the kids, like, ever. He was out making a living. That was the roles that they had to play. Honestly, she was thinking, I don't think he can. But for her to drop out of night school would mean that she would have to repay on some of those bills immediately. They would, they would come due, and then it would dig them into further and further financial distress and debt. And so knowing that she can't really drop out, that means that she would also have to get three part-time jobs to try to piece everything together if that's the decision that they're going to go, if her husband could possibly stay home and care for this mostly adult child. I mean, the bitterness of life at that moment just hitting them from every, every side. Why now? Why with all the uncertainty? Why can't we figure out what's next? For anybody asking the question of where is God in those bitter moments of life, for anybody asking about where is God when we can't see him, where is God when there are no miracles, where is God when there are no checks that show up unexpectedly and unsolicited, where is God when when there is no miraculous recovery that takes place, where is God when we can't see him? For everybody like Irene, like Daniel, Like you, there's the story of Ruth where God shows up, but not in the place of a miracle, not in the place of recovery, not in a place of unexpected, unsolicited checks showing up in the mailbox, but God never stopped working. I want to go there in the Bible with you to share some of that story from Ruth chapter one. It's the first chapter in Ruth, so I want to warn you that all, the, all the, the loose ends do not get tied up in chapter one. You're going to have to stick around for four parts 
for some of that to happen. But you can read, read along by sharing a, a Bible underneath the chairs in front of you. By the way, we give those away every weekend. If you don't have a Bible at home or if you like ours better, awesome, go for it, take it. That's cool, we love that. But the words are gonna be on the screen behind me to follow along that way. All right, Ruth 1, verse 1 starts off this way. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man named a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. See what the author is doing here with the storyteller very, very craftily, very intentionally, very, you might even say divinely, is, is pointing out the backdrop, the history of, of what's going on. In the days when the judges ruled, Ruth and this Bible, right, you can see the previous page was Judges. This is where on Ruth now. If you can't see it, that's fine. Um, when we see it in the judges ruled, what we got here is this is a bad time. The repeated refrain throughout the book of Judges, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, which sounds amazing. Absolute freedom. Absolute freedom, in this case, leads to absolute chaos. Everybody doing what was right in their own eyes. People were getting hurt left, right, and center. When the time that the judges ruled, it really means like nobody was in charge. I mean, the picture that's like painted for us here is something like, like Mardi Gras in New Orleans, spring break in Cancun, and I don't know, a prison riot, like all heaped together. And this is, what, this is the setting that they're in right now. And on top of that, there was a famine in the land, a famine in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a word that literally means, it's a bunch of words all strung together in Hebrew. It means the house of bread. So essentially, they're starving in Costco. That's how bad it is. There's a famine in Bethlehem. I mean, it's just, it's bleak. That's how it starts off. And I just, I just want to show, sometimes it's just, it's bleak. In verse 2, now the man, we start to get some, some characters in the story. The man's name was Elimelech. And now his wife was Naomi. There's a test on this later. And the names of his two sons, in case you're looking for suggestions, were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Somebody once told me that the Bible is the most honest book around because it's so upfront and honest about the remarkable uh, ability for human beings to be awful and just to fail. And it's not like there's a hero in the story who comes along, a super great person who's like, oh, now I'm the, you know, I'm the villain or whatever. It's just like story after story of human failure and about how God is unrelenting in rescuing us, mostly from ourselves. If the Bible is the most honest book, I think Ruth is probably pretty close to being one of the most honest stories in the most honest book. Because what we see here is not a story of black and white. It is not a story of being able to easily see and perceive what's right and wrong in the story. It's a story of grace. It's a story of, of mixed messages. It's a story of two steps forward and one step back. Point in case is this guy, Elimelech. His name literally means, my God is king. Now, isn't that isn't that an interesting point in the time when the judges ruled and everybody did what was right in their own eyes and, and Israel had no king, including God, that a guy named Elimelech comes along whose name is, my God is king. Doesn't that sound amazing? Like he's probably going to be the hero of the story. Now, some of you have met Elimelech. Some of you have maybe married Elimelech. Some of you are dating Elimelech where he comes along and he says all the right things in a time and place where nobody else is. And you think, this is the guy. I know he's perfect. After all, he says all the right things. Follow his actions, not his words. 
In this case, Elimelech, regardless of what his name is, the opening line of when we meet him, he's moving his family, his wife Naomi and his two boys to Moab. This was, a, this was a command that was expressly prohibited by God. Do not live in Moab. Don't move to Moab. The history of some of this stuff is when Abraham went this way, his nephew Lot went this way. The descendants of Abraham became the Israelites. We've heard of them. The descendants of Lot and his daughter were the Moabites. And things didn't really get much better from there. Their patron deity was a god named Chemosh. Chemosh demanded regular human sacrifice. It was a brutal place to call home. Fun fact, in the Bible, we see the story of the feuds and the conflict between Israel and Moab again and again. In 1870, a stone was discovered and unearthed called the Mesha stone, or sometimes it's called a Moabite stone, which essentially tells the same battle stories that the Bible tells us from the Israelite perspective, from the Moabite perspective. Point in case, uh, you could, uh, enough to say that the feeling was mutual. <laughs> we get it from both sides. They did not like each other. God expressly said, don't go to Moab. It's a brutal and horrible area. I want better for you, body and soul. And Elimelech uproots his wife and his two boys and moves there. Because at least they've got bread. Now listen to me. If you stick around at Encounter, you're going to hear me tell you this again and again. I believe that the Bible gives us this prioritized life. That, that, that everything in our life doesn't have equal say against one another. That our decision-making can be much resolved and become very much easier when we realize that our first priority in decision-making is to God and God alone. And after our priority to God and our obedience to Him, if you're married, it's to your spouse. After your spouse, it's to your, if you have them, children. After your children, it's to your job, your vocation, your calling, whatever you want to call it, the thing that makes you money, maybe your hobbies, that stuff. When these things get out of order, you could call it divine punishment. You could probably just call it misfortune. You could call it the consequences of bad decision-making. When they get out of order, bad things tend to follow. When your spouse is elevated to that position ahead of God, bad things tend to happen. You will crush them with the weight of your expectations that ought only to be reserved by God. When your children come ahead of your spouse, it becomes, it makes for a very lonely golden years, okay? When these things get out of order, bad things tend to follow. In this opening line, we see my God is King Elimelech. Regardless of what he says, he takes that fourth thing, short-term financial security, and he elevates it above the care of his two boys, Malon and Kilion. He, sees it, uh, he elevates it above care for and safety of his wife, Naomi, and he elevates it above even his obedience and his first allegiance to his actual king, God. He takes the last thing and he makes it first. And you can start to see, I think bad things are probably going to follow as he endangers his two boys and his wife, body and soul now, in the country of Moab. All right, we pick it up from verse three. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, 
Both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, God showed up. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. If you're reading the book, Bible on your own at home. One of the interesting things to do is just to, is just to track like the pace or the cadence of some of the story. Uh, so for example, the first few paragraphs that I read for you, everything like moves around as quick as can be. Uh, we immediately get when the judges rule, so this time and this Bethlehem and Moab, the setting, the place. And, and then immediately like, like the two boys, we don't know how old they are, but all of a sudden they're grown, they're married, 10 years later of not having any children, they died. Like this decades-long gap was just like, and then this, and then this, and then this. And we just fast-forwarded, what, 10, maybe 20 years? I don't know. Like the boys are grown, and then, they, and then they died. And then all of a sudden, this whole story just comes screeching to a halt as this dialogue takes place between Naomi and Ruth, and just trying to like explain to them and, and her sister or and the, the other daughter-in-law, uh, Orpah, listen, uh, you, should, you should go back home. Don't follow me. Don't come after me. Just go back. And it's like the author painstakingly takes so much time to like unpack this really what seems like an inconsequential detail of the story. Like, how did they die? Why didn't they have kids? Like, there was so many other details of the story. But the author, the storyteller, doesn't care about that. He just cares about, like, this exchange, about begging and pleading. Why? A couple of reasons. The first one, and this I think is going to be maybe helpful, is that the storyteller wanted in some way to show just how desperate, just how hopeless the situation actually was for Naomi. The, the, the storyteller like pauses the whole thing to say, no, no, no you have to understand is, is that she had nothing. I mean, these, these daughters were like it, but, but even to them, she was saying, I am basically dead. At one point, she turns to them and says, the Lord has turned his hand against me. They didn't know the Lord. They grew up in Moab. But now she's saying, listen, you don't want to follow me. I'm a walking dead man, right? The the hand of God is against me. I am completely and utterly in despair without hope. My life is as bitter as it could possibly get. The second reason is to show us that she can't see a way out. Now, what's interesting about the story of Naomi, I don't know why the book is called Ruth, because it's really about Naomi, but but what's interesting about Naomi, she should have known better. See, there was provisions for this sort of thing. There was a plan for this sort of thing. God actually said, you can fact check me, Deuteronomy 25, there was a law that said, if your husband passed away, 
Somebody else in the community, probably a brother of that husband who passed away, maybe a cousin, somebody next in line, they were obligated by law to take you on and to care for you. But she couldn't see it. Isn't that the most human thing ever? That God was still at work. He had a plan. But because of her hopelessness and because of her despair, when she tasted bitterness, she couldn't see or taste anything sweet. It was like the blinders were put on. She got tunnel vision and all she could focus on was her own despair and her own hopelessness. Isn't that the most human thing ever? I think this is why it's so important for us as a church community, as we continue to grow, that we continue to have this saying that we do not do life alone, that we do life together in community. Because I am telling you, you will taste bitterness. And when you do, you may not be able to see that God has a plan. You may not be able to see that God is at work. For Naomi, you may not be able to see that, that God had provided a kinsman redeemer. You may not be able to see that God was still at work, that, that God had actually come to the aid of his people. You may not be able to see that God was still at work the whole time. And you will need somebody to show up in your life and to remind you that even though it tastes bitter in your mouth today, that God is still great and God is still good and God has still got you. We do life together. It is critically important. You do not just show up here. You do not just stream online, but you find your church people, your small group, your serving team, whoever it is to do life together, because you will need to be reminded of that in some season of life. Naomi needed to be reminded of it. The story continues. The reminder comes from an unlikely place, Ruth the Moabite, who knows nothing about God. And she replied, don't urge me, in verse 16, to leave you or to turn back from you. And then this beautiful line that many of you have used as your, uh, on your wedding day, where you go, I will go. Where you will stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. He probably didn't realize that it was a daughter talking to her mother-in-law, which changes the context significantly. <laughs> Verse 17, where you die, I will die. That didn't make it on the program either. And there will be, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, which means sweet, she told them. Call me Mara, bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me sweet Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. This next question that I'm about to ask is going to determine the level of unbreakability of your faith. 
Was she wrong? When she says that the Lord brought me away full, the Lord brought me away empty. When she said that the Lord had afflicted me, the Lord brought misfortune upon me. Was she wrong? You guys, so much of my heart wants to call her out and to say, absolutely. God maybe allowed it to happen, but what's the difference? There's so much a part of me that wants to say, there are, there are so many ways to let God off the hook. There are so many ways to, to find the workaround. I mean, you're looking for somebody to blame? Blame Moab. They're awful. Blame, blame the people, the priests of Chemosh. But blame, blame anybody else. You want somebody to blame? What about that husband you married? Blame him. Blame Elimelech. He, he moved you there. He was disobedient. He brought all, he'd probably still be alive and your boys if he didn't move you there. Blame Elimelech. You know what, Naomi? Blame yourself for marrying Elimelech. You should have known not what he, the words that he used, but by the walk that he walked. You blame yourself. Blame anybody except don't blame God. Let God off the hook. So then what? We turn back at a guy like Elimelech and we say, well, it looks like he was strong enough to thwart the divine plan of God. And that, that's supposed to help? That's supposed to comfort us? Well, well, Naomi screwed up. She married the wrong person, obviously, so God couldn't do what he set out to do. And that's supposed to help us? Live this unbreakable faith that somehow we're now in the driver's seat and God is in the back and we're telling him what to do? Is that comforting at all, especially when we are tasting the bitterness that life has to offer? Listen, I don't think she was wrong. I think she was right. I think it's the only way to live and face God and to say good or bad, sweet or bitter, it all comes from your divine hand. The only thing the only thing that Naomi couldn't see is that the story wasn't done yet. The only thing. She was right the entire time, but she just didn't get quite to that place where she could turn the chapter over and see that there was a new one. She couldn't quite see that though this chapter was awful. This chapter was a low one. This chapter was a plot twist that nobody ever would have asked for, that the author was still a skilled author, and he was telling a good story. But man, were there some awful parts to it. That God was at work, and he was baking, and some of the ingredients went down so bitter, but he was still baking something sweet. I said, we're on chapter one. And this isn't going to be much of an assurance to many of you, but I want to just be honest and say, I think that's probably where a lot of people in the room are. Where there isn't much to hang on to. There isn't much in the Naomi story. And all you really get to an ending of chapter one is just one crummy verse, 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite. Had to point that one out. Her daughter-in-law. Arriving in Bethlehem, 
as the harvest, as the barley harvest was beginning. It isn't much, but if you remember to verse one, there was a time in recent memory when we didn't take harvest of any kind for granted because of the famine that ravaged the land. Listen, the barley harvest was starting. It isn't much, but you know, it's something. It isn't much, but it's all of a sudden like the economic engines of this little town of Bethlehem are starting to roar up. By the way, uh, barley was the first grain that was harvested. A month later, wheat would be harvested. So you start to kind of get this picture of like, like vitality and life is now coming back into the town. You get this sense in which hands are going to need, be needed to do the work. You get the sense like there's, there's going to be cutting and threshing and gleaning and, and sifting and bagging and, and, and more. There's going to be harvesting that's going to have to be taken place. It isn't much, but it's like something to hold on to, to be reminded, even in the bitter times, that God is still great and God is still good and God has still got you. It isn't much, but it's something to hold on to. That's a critical moment for many of you. When you find yourself in that place with so little and maybe even just hanging on by your fingernails on that cliff, ready to give up, and you're like going, God, it isn't enough to hold on to. You're right. But those are those defining moments that will change the trajectory of your future. When you taste the bitterness of life and you can still turn back to God and to say good or bad, sweet or bitter, I thank you for whatever comes from your divine hand. See, most of us, when we hear about God's two hands, there's the visible hand of God's provision and God's miracles, where he breaks into history and he disrupts the natural order that he created. And he provides. And we say, that's what I'm looking for, God, thank you. But then for the rest of us, there's the invisible hand of God's sovereign providence that's guiding all times and all places, all throughout. And he's saying, I still got you. And all of us are fitting into this one way or another. We thank him for his invisible hand of providence. You want unbreakable faith for the bitter seasons of life? This is what the unbreakable faith for the bitter seasons looks like. Three words if you want to write them down. Unbreakable faith for the bitter turns in life are being patient, thankful, and confident. Unbreakable faith looks like turning to God and saying, no, no, even in the bitterness, I, I, can, I can be patient when things go against me because I know that the author is good even though the chapter is bad. I know that this isn't the last word. I know that there's resurrection at the end of the story. I can be patient when things don't go my way because I know that God is still baking something sweet out of bitter ingredients. I can be patient when things go against me. I can be thankful when things go for me because as a people of God, as Christ's followers, we don't believe in chance. We don't believe in this randomness. So every good thing that ever comes into our lives, anything life-giving, any kind of blessing, whether it's big or small, it comes directly as a gift from the hand of the God at the center of the universe. Can you imagine that? Everything 
Whether, whether it's, it's being able to, to have a good job or have a good family or have a good church, maybe, it, hopefully. It, it's all a gift from the benevolent hand of God, a special like, like here, because you're special, I want to give this to you. It's not an accident. It's a gift of God. Everything that adds life and adds value to your life is a gift from God. Whether it's, it's cats, I don't know if you're a cat person, maybe that's the other side of the patient affliction, or maybe cats or dogs, whether it's pizza or popcorn, like all of ice cream, birthday parties, new clothes, new job, new health, new baby, all of it is a direct gift from the hand of God. Christians ought to be the most gracious, thankful people on the planet because we believe that every good thing we have directly came from the God at the center of it all. Patience when things go against us. Thankfulness when things go for us. And confidence for the future. Somebody was in my office earlier this week, and we had a very difficult situation. To, to be honest, it was not really a, a good decision that could ever come out of it, and we knew that it would, it would hurt one way or another. And they looked over at the table at me and they asked, when are the adults going to get here? And I'm like, yeah, when did we become the adults, right? As a kid, I remember growing up thinking that they had all the answers, that mom and dad knew no matter what. They loved me and they wanted good things for me and they knew exactly what to do. As an adult now, as a parent now, I'm quickly finding out, I don't know what to do. I don't know what the right answer is. Imagine the confidence that we can have to get on our knees and to pray those two words, our Father. And to know that that God, our Father, he, know, he wants us to grow up and become mature men and women of faith. And he also knows what to do to bring us to that place. Our Father. Confidence in the future because we know who holds the future. I think when we do that, when we align our desire with the divine, I think when we have that, that patience, that thankfulness, and that confidence, that's an unbreakable faith that God is making something sweet. Remember Irene? And her son, Daniel, she never saw it coming. They knew what, what they had to do, but she decided she was just going to bear it rather than look for God in it. She kept in her night classes to stay in school. She got three part-time jobs to help pay for the bills, and she prayed for her husband who was staying home with their high school kid, Daniel, who needed 24-7 care. And she said, it wasn't until I saw him learn how to wash the hair of a child who wore a neck brace, cook meals that he's never cooked before, care for our other two kids. I saw this bond develop in him that never would have been possible had he remained out working for a living. In a sense, she took the bitterness that hit her in life 
And she turned back to God and saying, I know it goes down bitter, but I have the unbreakable faith to say that I trust that you're baking something sweet. Let's pray together. Gracious God, you're up to something. You're moving. God, we ask that you give us those, uh, those eyes and that heart to be patient when things don't go our way, to be thankful when they do, and confidence when we just don't know. God, this unbreakable faith that you have given, God, may we have the courage, even on uh, Fridays and Saturdays, when you're still in the tomb and it looks like death had the last word, to have an unbreakable faith that Sunday is still coming, that you're still baking something sweet, even when the ingredients are bitter. Jesus, it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.